I know some of you were probably thinking with the home screen up on the podium during worship that we were going to watch a movie or something, but no, we're not going to do that. We're going to open the book tonight. So before we do, let me just remind you this Sunday, David Rubin from Shiloh Israel Children's Fund is going to be with us this Sunday morning, and you're going to hear some things that will blow your mind, remind us that God is not done with the Jews of the nation of Israel. And uh, he just has a miraculous testimony himself. And then from that testimony, he has been called to a ministry of dealing with those and the aftermath of terror attacks, and uh, especially the school that's just filled with children uh, who are dealing with the loss of a family member or having been injured themselves. And uh, he'll tell us much about that uh, Sunday morning. So I encourage you to be here uh, this Sunday. Obviously, he'll be with us at both services. So here we go. You ready? Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13 will be our text this evening. We'll read the whole of it, obviously. And let me just intro our time with a couple of reminders. One, when we were first introduced to the man who was the response to the people's demand for a king like other nations, we made note that you need to be careful what you ask for because the people got exactly what they asked for. They got a king who was like the king of pagan nations, a king like other nations that Samuel told them was going to take their children into his army in servitude, who would take their properties and give them or distribute them among his cohorts. He would take their skilled people and put them into his service. And indeed, that is what we'll read of in the coming chapters. Now, we also made note of another factor, important factor, that is, from this whole scenario. And that is, 1 Samuel 9, 1-4 told us that there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son, whose name was what? Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was head and shoulders uh, taller, obviously, or head taller, we might say. And now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, please take one of the servants with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. So he, Saul, passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shaalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Now, we made note from this in the verses that follows that it seemed like Samuel was a humble man. He was an obedient son. He cared for the concerns and wishes of his father, and he did what his father asked him. And he even had a concern when they'd been gone for longer than they had hoped to be gone, that his father would begin to worry about him. Now, we also noted in chapter 10 that when it came time to introduce Saul as king, they at first couldn't find him. And then after their search, they found him hiding among the equipment. Remember, Samuel had told the people to gather at Mizpah and their uh, hardware associated with their travels uh, was the hiding place of Saul. Then in chapter 11, we're told that he was announced as the people's choice for a king. And we read when Nahash, remember the serpent king of the Ammonites, that is, came up against the inhabitants of Gilead, that Saul was back at home working on his father's ranch. He wasn't out strutting his stuff saying, I am the king of Israel. Now, we found from Saul's life and looking forward a little bit into what we're going to look at in detail tonight, that we need to remember how you finish is more important than how you begin. Saul seemed to have a good start. He seemed to begin well. And though some commentators viewed his humility as feigned, there was nothing within the text to indicate that that was actually so. But considering the people's request for a king like other nations, we're going to find our point about how we finish made for us in our text this evening. Now, Saul was introduced to the people according to his 
outward features. He was handsome. There was nobody more handsome than he. Obviously, being Jewish, he was olive-skinned, so he could well say he was tall, dark, and handsome. And that is how he was introduced to the people. In other words, he looked very kingly. However, on the inside, as we'll find this evening, in what really matters, he was actually very carnal. Now, we're also going to have introduced to us tonight another key character who is going to be a principal in the narrative of Samuel from this point forward. He is a man who is described of being a kindred spirit of the one who was actually God's choice for a king over Israel, King David. We're going to find introduced to us tonight a man who is actually nothing like his father, and obviously his name is Jonathan, and we'll learn much about him as we continue our journey in future chapters. Now... Our title tonight is a variation of a phrase that we've all used and it's been associated down through the ages with both madman, madmen rather, and tyrants who have ruled empires and persecuted and even executed their foes. And we speak of their reigns as a reign of terror. Now, our title tonight, we could simply introduce by saying, drop the T, and you'll find out what that means as I give you the title. Because the fact is, What we're going to find that begins with the rule of King Saul from this point forward is not a reign of terror, but here's our title, a reign of error. Drop the T, get it? See how clever that was? A reign of error. Now, let me remind us of a couple of things. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we're told that you, speaking to the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Somebody say amen to that. Who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now we're also told in Revelation, when they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I paired those sets of verses uh, together for this purpose. A royal priesthood is another way of saying kings and priests. And now we see this dubbed group as a royal priesthood on the earth, now in the heavenly scene, identified as kings and priests. And this is at the end of the church age. Those who have been redeemed by his blood are of a royal priesthood and are made kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign with Jesus on the earth. By the way, we're talking about our future here. This is what awaits you and I to return with the Lord Jesus Christ and rule and reign with him on the earth in righteousness. Now, what we're going to find tonight is that we await, as we await that day, there's three things from the expose of the carnality of Saul that we need to avoid at all costs, lest we, as kings and priests, to our God, live under a reign of error. The first of the three will be found in the opening seven verses of 1 Samuel 13. So would you stand and read with me, please? 1 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 7, as we see the beginning of Saul's reign of error. Verse 1. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. 
When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. You may be seated. Now, we're going to have to dig a little bit for our first observation about this transformation of Saul in the negative sense he was transforming to see the differences between Saul and his son Jonathan, even as Jonathan is now introduced to us as a character, as I said, we'll hear much more about in coming chapters. Now, the names we're going to encounter, the places we just read, are going to be interesting as well. And this is rather telling in the sense that Saul had stationed himself in a place in direct contrast to where he positioned his own son, Jonathan, as well as the numbers that were escorting each of the two men. Now, Michmash was some 10 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and it means hidden. And if we think back to what we read or mentioned earlier about Saul being hidden among the equipment, initially before he was king, he was humble, he was fearful of the position, and he was hiding among the equipment before he was king. Now he's hiding in Michmash after he is king with some 2,000 men. Now, Jonathan, in contrast, has a thousand men with him, and he is camped at Gibeah of Benjamin. And we need to note that Gibeah and Geba that we read also both mean hill, and that are there are two hills in view, and we'll see that later. Now, Jonathan attacks the garrison of the Philistines in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, obviously, this is Saul's tribe and therefore Jonathan's as well. Now, I have to say, I make no claim to being a military strategist, but just logic tells me when you're on the hill of battle versus in a city hiding, it'd probably be better to have the 2,000 men with Jonathan than it would to have them with Saul. But that isn't what Saul did. And here we are some two years into Saul's reign. And while our text may not record the fact, the truth is, Human nature tells us very likely that all the attention that Saul received after the the defeat of Nahash, the serpent king, king of the Ammonites, and after all the praises he received from the people, Saul's flesh was probably saying, you know, let's do that again. I liked all that attention. Let's repeat something that will draw that attention to me. And he did so even at the expense of his own son's rightful recognition. Now, we'll explain that here in a moment, but let me remind you of two things. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before what? Destruction. Let me just pause for a moment. Let's make sure we're quoting that right. I see it. I hear it all the time. People say pride goes before a fall. That's not what the proverb says. Pride goes before what? Destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, Proverbs 27, 2 also says, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. I think we could add to that the adage we've all heard and said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts out. Absolutely. And this is what was going on with King Saul. He went from a man who was humble, obedient to his father, concerned about the needs of his own family, to now he's in a place of hiding. He puts 2,000 men with him. Jonathan is on the front lines. He assigns 1,000 men to him. And indeed, we now see his pride beginning to make its way to the surface. Now, it didn't take long for this once humble man to become a now prideful man when power was handed to him. I think we've all probably seen that over the years in our lives where somebody's granted a position with a bit of authority and it goes immediately to their noggin and all of a sudden you can't get their head through the door because they got uh, a position of power. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? So we've all experienced those types of situations and people. And this is likely what was going on with Saul. It says he was king for a year. Then it says he was king for two years. And then he decided that he was going to surround himself with 2,000 men and put Jonathan on the front lines with only 1,000. And thus begins his reign of error. Now, then we're told that Jonathan attacks the Philistine garrison with an implied obvious success. 
Well, after his successes, then Saul blows the trumpet and makes this proclamation. It's kind of curious. He says, let all the Hebrews hear. Now, why would he say let all the Hebrews hear, which was the original name for uh, God's chosen people, rather than why would he not say let all Israel hear? And the reason being, most commentators were in unison about this, and that is the Lord never calls his people my Hebrews. He always calls them my people Israel. Now, it seems as though Saul was trying to leave God out of the equation, so to speak, uh, the victory equation especially, and he does the same thing to Jonathan. We don't see a cry of the people regarding the efforts of Jonathan and the victory of his exploits. And we know later on he's going to do the same thing to David when the women sing a song about David is, or Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul became jealous. And we see the same thing here. He's jealous of his own son because he was under a reign of error. Now, Later verses are going to tell us that there was some type of semblance of a forced peace between the Israelites and the Philistines. But with this act of Jonathan's, all bets are off now, so to speak. This act that Saul took credit for, Israel had become now an abomination to the Philistines. And the people therefore gathered at Gilgal with Saul to see what it was that they should do. Well, the Philistines began to gather as well in mass. And some commentators report that the number of chariots and horsemen are likely a copyist error. And many of them said, you know, somebody actually accidentally put a zero or maybe two at the end of the numbers of the chariots and horses. Now, I don't know why some seek to force something into the text like that, because there was no mistake when Samuel used a common phrase or analogy, if you will, to describe this massive army when he employed the same figure of speech used to describe the number of descendants of Abraham in Genesis 22:17, where he describes him as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. So this is a massive army, um, an army so great it couldn't be numbered. So it's not unreasonable that they would have some 30,000 chariots and a large uh, infantry of horsemen as well. Now, this massive army camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. And Beth-Avon is also an interesting name. It means the house of vanity. So we can see in this whole picture, you've got a place of hiding. You've got a house of vanity. Everything is about self. Everything is about humanity. Now, one last contrast I want us to consider tonight. The last time when Israel was threatened by the army of the serpent king, Saul was a different man and the reign of error had not begun. Now, last time when Nahash was threatening, in 1 Samuel 11, 4-7, we're told the messengers came to Gebeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people lift up their voices and wept. Now, there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. Remember, he went back to his dad's ranch and farm. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh who reported what Nahash had threatened them with to put out their eyes to make an agreement with them. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the what? What's the next phrase? The fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out, with one consent. Or in other words, they were united behind the cause that Saul was leading the charge in. Now, however, because the reign of error was in full swing, the people are not under the fear of the Lord. They fall under the fear of the Philistines. And they try and hide from them rather than being of one consent against them. Some even cross back over the Jordan running in fear of the Philistine attack. Those who did continue with Saul, we're told, did so trembling. And this is what the reign of error in our lives personally will bring to us. And this brings us to our first of three considerations tonight. Here's the first thing I'd like you to jot down this evening. Listen, the lack or loss of the fear of the Lord is an open door for all other fears. 
The lack or loss of the fear of the Lord is an open door for all other fears. Now, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us the spirit of what? The spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. And the fear of the Lord is a phrase that is unacceptable to many today because of the absence of clear biblical teaching on the matter. Yet, consider this tonight. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean, meaning pure. The Bible tells us the Lord has his eye on those who fear him. The Bible tells us that the angels of the Lord encamp around those who fear him. The Bible says his mercy is everlasting on those who fear him. The Bible says the fear of the Lord brings knowledge of the Holy One. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. I don't see any negative consequences for fearing the Lord. And yet many today describe it as old school, so to speak, or part of an antiquated system of belief. Listen. The fear of the Lord is to revere him and look at him and bow to him in awe, reverent awe, specifically. Should we bow before the Lord? Should we recognize that he is yet today a consuming fire? Should we see him as a great and awesome God of heaven, the ancient of days, the Lord God Almighty, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Should we not view him like that today? Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Psalm 33, 8-11 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast or remains to this day. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands for how long? Forever the plans of his heart to all generations. Now in contrast, Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Listen, the fear of the Lord guards us against opening the door to all other kinds of fears. Those who lack it or lose it open the door for the fear of the loss of wealth, the fear of the loss of health, the fear of death, the fear of enemy attacks, or anything else that is associated with a carnal fear of man or our flesh. So let's not live under the reign of error by lacking the fear of the Lord. Amen? Now, let's look at 8 through 15 and continue this uh, incredible chapter. Pick it up in 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him about how many... 600. So he lost 1,400 of his soldiers or army uh, during this time of threat from the Philistines. Now, it talks about the seven-day period, which we ran into before, when Saul was first identified as king. He was told to wait for Samuel for seven days. Now, whether they had that conversation again or whether Saul just assumed this was basically something that was going to be standard up from that point forward, we really don't know. But either way, Samuel didn't show up when Saul thought he should. So therefore, he felt compelled to do what only a priest would do, which would be offering burnt offerings to the Lord. Now, the word compelled and the Holy Spirit makes no mistakes in Scripture. Amen? 
Every word is selected precisely for the fullness of meaning that we can glean from digging into it a bit further. Now, the word compelled has basically two meanings. It means to restrain oneself, but it can also mean to be forced into. So it has polar opposite meanings in that sense. And the word, therefore, seems to imply that Saul had a choice. He could restrain himself or he could let his flesh force him into doing what he was not to do. All he had to do was wait. And it's interesting that as soon as he made the errant decision and followed it with actions, meaning offering to sacrifice himself, Samuel shows up. Now, whether it was the smell of a fresh offering in the air or the look on Saul's face, we don't know. But what we do know is that Samuel knew Saul had done something. After all, he was the one that was called to anoint and appoint Saul as king. And any of you parents out there know that guilty look on a child's face when they've done something wrong. So it's possible that this is all that Samuel needed. One look at Saul and he knew something was up. Now, when confronted by Samuel, Saul instantly repents, seeks forgiveness, cries out to God for mercy. Is that what your Bible says? No, he didn't do that. You know what he did? He started blame shifting. He started looking around for excuses. He says, you know, things were unraveling quickly and then you don't show up when you're supposed to, Sam. The Philistines showed up in Michmash and I said, you know what? They're going to come down and they're going to kill us all. And I haven't even offered a sacrifice to the Lord and I felt forced into the situation. So I offered one. Now, Samuel replies to Saul's excuses that you've done foolishly. You have ignored the commands of the Lord. Now listen, it doesn't matter if the commands were given directly to Saul. Saul was a Jew and the commands to the Jews were for all the Jews. And even if the command was given through Moses concerning Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, it doesn't matter. It was still a command directly to Saul. He was not to be one offering sacrifices. Now, there's something at the end of uh, verse 13 that is kind of curious. And Samuel says that the Lord would have established Saul's kingdom over Israel forever. Yet, looking back to when Jacob blessed his 12 sons, in Genesis 49, 9, and 10, we're told of Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter, who holds a scepter? King holds a scepter. This is the kingly tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, meaning the descendants of Judah, until Shiloh comes, a messianic title, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Is there a lion from the tribe of Judah that has come once as a lamb of God and is returning as a lion to judge the world? Yes, there is. That is the kingly tribe. That's why Jesus was a descendant of David. Now, Judah is the tribe of kings through which the Messiah would come. And Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that leaves us with two options of interpretation. It could have been that Jacob in Genesis 49 was foreseeing foretelling, if you will, the failure of Saul and the transference, therefore, prophetically to the kingly line of Judah. Or there could simply be a different meaning of the words of Samuel. So we can clear that up, I think, in our thinking. I believe what Samuel was saying is that Saul's kingdom would not end in disaster if Saul didn't act the way he did. And the annals of history would record Saul's kingdom as a God-honoring kingdom. But instead of choosing to refrain himself, he was forced into, at least in his mind, this act of sin. And he chose, therefore, a reign of error instead of a reign of righteousness that would be recorded in Scripture. Now... Saul's response to Samuel reminds us of another man who grew a bit impatient when he was waiting. And he was a man who was actually a priest. As a matter of fact, he was the first priest. Now in Exodus 32, 1-4, we're told when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain like Samuel was late getting to Gilgal, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses... 
the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. Now read the last sentence with me. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Now listen to what Aaron says to Moses when Moses confronted him after the Lord said, Get down off this mountain. Your people are playing the fool. Moses said to Aaron, Why, What did this people do to you that you brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. The Lord speaking to Moses. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire, and his calf came out. Now, is that what actually happened? No. And we could even go all the way back to the first pair of humans on the face of the earth and find this pattern of transference or blame shifting within the heart of man. As Adam said to the Lord when the Lord confronted him about eating of the forbidden fruit, what did Adam reply to the Lord? Yes, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned and broken your command. Oh, he said, hey, wait a minute, it was a woman you gave me. He blamed it on the Lord. An act that put all of mankind under the reign of error. Now, for our learning from this scene and the things we just mentioned, we can draw this conclusion. Listen, divine instructions don't come with an expiration date. Divine instructions don't come with an expiration date. Now, we don't know how long after the seven days Samuel showed up, but based on human nature, it probably wasn't very long. I don't know about you, but I'm not good at waiting in lines. Anybody know what I'm talking about here tonight? Anybody else assess the lines at Costco? Anybody else examine the efficiency of each checker? Count the number of items in each cart? See which line? If you do the math and the equation spells out fastest line and you get there and then somebody writes a two-part out-of-state check that needs management approval and you wind up waiting a half hour longer? Do you know what I'm talking about tonight? Yeah, we've all been there and done that. Now, we grow impatient quickly and Saul likely was doing the same. Now, there are many directions we can take our second truth, including God's moral code has no expiration date. God's precepts and doctrines have no expiration date. But the more practical side of this is more simple and applicable to our time tonight. And it's a famous verse in Isaiah forty thirty one that says, But those who wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Saul didn't wait on the Lord. Saul didn't renew his strength. Saul did grow weary. And Saul did faint in his walk. Now, let me add this before we get to our last section. I mentioned it earlier. I'll say it again. It doesn't matter when God said it. If he said it thousands of years ago, it still stands fast today. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at what? Who trembles at my word. Isn't that the fear of the Lord? Trembling at his word? Absolutely. And the word look implies to look on with favor. The one who trembles at his word, the Lord will look on with favor. Now, Saul took matters into his own hands because he was tired of waiting. And the circumstances were growing worse and worse around him. Yet he is rebuked for not keeping the commandment of the Lord in spite of his circumstances and is tired of being uh, put off or waiting for Samuel. But we need to remember, divine instructions don't come with an expiration date. If we ignore this, we wind up living under the, under the reign of error. Now, if God said something, it's going to happen. If God promised something, it's going to come to pass. If he said, wait for me and you'll renew your strength, then if you wait for him, you'll renew your strength. The word of God cannot return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Amen? 
Now let's wrap up our last section. I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. And I had it in my heart and in my mind. And we're going to kind of make our way to Sunday via the last hour of our message tonight. And I want to first of all say as we uh, get to 16 and 20, 16 to 25, that uh, there's a, a wonderful picture that's painted for us here that is uh, still happening today. So let's read 16 to 25, and then we'll wrap up our time with some interesting factoids. Now, 16 says, Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gebeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shul, and another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road border, that road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of the battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out the pass uh, to the pass of Michmash. Now, if you remember, the Lord said to Saul on the Damascus road, who became Paul, is it hard for you? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And a goad was simply a prod that they would use to get oxen to cooperate or donkeys to uh, continue to carry under the load of their burden. So we see a rather interesting insight here, one that has some application in our day. And let me just say, I don't have any political motivation here, but I will say this. Disarming the people has long been a tactic of oppressive regimes. And therefore, I think we need to keep that in mind even in the day in which we live. Now, here it seems that the semblance of a forced peace that we mentioned earlier is in view. The Israelites will go to the Philistines, the smithies, so to speak, to have their farming tools sharpened at the cost of the one tool that could be used as a weapon. Now, Pim was a pickaxe, or as it's called here in our text, a mattock. And they didn't want them to have a pickaxe, and therefore they were determining the possibility of these things being used against them in the form of a weapon. So, as we talk about, we'll see some uh, interesting things in chapter 14, and much of what we read will come into play then as we see the rest of this text unfold. But for now, what I want you to consider from this last section of verses is that the people of God are under attack, they are outnumbered, and they are unarmed. And no one possessed a weapon except Saul and his son, Jonathan. Yet, Jonathan leads the defeat against the Philistines. Now, we know indeed that God has watched over the nation of Israel in the past. They have defeated uh, having been outnumbered by enemies throughout the course of their history. They have defeated uh, massive troops, troops that were destroying uh, other countries and invading other lands, and God has been with them. And they are back in the land today. And may I submit to you tonight that God is still doing the same thing with Israel. So don't let anybody tell you that modern Israel is not biblical Israel. The Israel today is the Israel of the Bible. There are the people back in the land that were scattered among the nations. And there are multitudes of prophecies concerning this fact. Now, what I want to do in conclusion tonight, we've got about 15 minutes left, 14 or 15 minutes. I want to take a good part of it and bring you up to speed. And again, as I said, kind of a segue into some of the things we're going to hear about Sunday. Now, again, because we're going to examine in great detail what follows the things we just mentioned in chapter 14, I want to share with you some details about how frequently this scenario has been repeated in modern times. The nation of Israel is outnumbered and they are without any sort of weaponry or defense. This has happened in recent history, and we'll look at these things through the lens of the War of Independence in 1948, the Six-Day War in 67, and the Yom Kippur War of 1973. These were three battles when the nation of Israel was greatly outnumbered 
and they were without any sophisticated weaponry, yet the weapons formed against them did not prosper at driving them out of the land or succeed or prevail at driving them out of the land. They are not going to be driven out of the land. God brought them back into the land that he gave them and they have every right to every inch of it. Amen? Now, though fought in 1948, the War of Independence actually began back in 1936 with a series of Arab riots in what is called the Great Revolt. It was in response to the Brits allowing Jewish immigration back into the homeland. Now, the Arabs demanded the British end Jewish immigration, and they began attacking Jewish neighborhoods, causing the British to finally succumb to the pressures and stop Jewish immigration to their own homeland, the land given to them by God. Now, with World War II in full swing, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem visited Berlin, and Muslims began to fight on the side of the Nazis, while the Jews began to fight on the side of the British, and they formed the Haganah, which is the predecessor to the now uh, well-known battle group known as the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, tensions began to grow between the five million Arabs and half a million Jews, and in 1943, the British blockade the ports of Israel and refused entry to Holocaust survivors. Imagine, they just come out of the concentration camps. They just make their way to the coastline of Israel and the British block the ports and deny these Holocaust survivors entry to the land that is rightfully theirs. Now in 1944, therefore, the Israelis begin to fight against the British, an empire that had the claim that the sun never sets on it. And July 22nd, 1946, members of the Israeli underground, led by a man named Menachem Begin, began to infiltrate British headquarters at the King David Hotel, disguised as kitchen workers, and they snuck in 350 kilograms of explosive in milk containers, and they wound up killing 91 of the Brits. And this broke the will of the British, and they were soon exiting the country. In 1947, with Arab attacks on Jews increasing, on November 29th, the area they call Palestine is partitioned into two states, and the Jews begin celebrating having a homeland. 5,000 Arabs riot, burning down the Jewish commercial center. Arab snipers begin targeting and killing Jews. Arab forces trap 30,000 Jews in Jerusalem, cutting off their water and food supply. During this siege, 1,500 Jewish soldiers soldiers repel Arab armies, capture 300 truck convoy, a 300 truck convoy of supplies, saving the lives of those people who were trapped in Jerusalem. On May 14, 1948, the British mandate over Israel ends. David Ben-Gurion declares Israel is a Jewish state. At midnight, on the first day of Israel's existence, Egypt began bombing Tel Aviv. Lebanon attacked Haifa and Nazareth. Syrian tanks advanced on the Sea of Galilee. The Iraqis took up positions in Samaria. Jordan's army surrounded Jerusalem as 10,000 Egyptian troops began to make their way across the Sinai toward Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, coming within 17 miles of Tel Aviv. The Israelis have no artillery. They have no aircraft. They have no tanks. They fought five invading nations with mortars made from irrigation pipes and homemade hand grenades, small arms, rifles, and pistols. Oh, and God. Holocaust survivors then began to arrive and get off the boat, and they got off the boat and went directly to the battlefield. And with little to defend itself in May of 1948, Israel hurriedly purchased a number of secondhand checkmate Messerschmitts. And the planes were taken apart, transported into Israel by night, secretly reassembled at a place known as Ekron. Uh, later, it's known as the Telnoff Air Force Base. And the first pilots hoped to employ this force against the main Egyptian air threat based at El Arich. And interesting, on May 29, 1948, an Egyptian column numbering 500 armored vehicles and cannons crossed Kibbutz Nitzanim uh, on its way northward. The Egyptian column advanced toward Ashdod, and if the Egyptian force would have not have been halted at Ashdod, it could continue right into Tel Aviv unabated. 
And therefore, the IDF general staff decided to strike hard at the advancing column and employ aircraft for the first time. The column of some 500 vehicles was making its way up the coastal road toward Tel Aviv. The column halted briefly at a bombed-out bridge near Ashdod. 17 miles separated the enemy from its objective of Tel Aviv. And with no alternative, the first four fully assembled planes were pressed into action. Now get this, they'd never flown them before. The pilots had never flown these checkmate Messerschmitts. So their training mission was a real mission. Lou Leonard, who was an experienced American volunteer, led the historic mission. He was joined by Modi Alon, Ezer Weitzman, Eddie Cohen. And each plane swooped down on the enemy with two 70-kilogram bombs. They continued to strafe the column despite the heavy ground fire. And unfortunately, the Messerschmitts that were untested with their 20-millimeter cannons and machine guns jammed quickly, and the few rounds that they fired didn't inflict much damage. Now, the psychological effect is what was tremendous. The Egyptians were surprised. They scattered for cover under a bona fide aerial attack, and by the time they regrouped, they lost the offensive. The Jews were victorious. Israel's outnumbered forces seized the opportunity to launch a counterattack and stop the advance in its tracks, 17 miles from Tel Aviv. The bombed-out bridge later became known as the Gesher Ad Halom, meaning until here. They were advancing until here. And the price of success was high. Eddie Cohen, a South African-born pilot, was killed when his Messerschmitt crashed and burned. As a result, the first fighter squadron lost one-fourth of its pilot on its maiden combat sortie. One-fourth was one plane. There's other things we could share, but let me move on to May 14, 1948, and just say five nations with established militaries attacked an unarmed people numbering half a million who managed to fight back with homemade weapons until mechanized weaponry arrived until August of 1948. Egypt, the main aggressor, they wound up calling for a ceasefire and truce, and the armistice agreement was signed. 1949, tens of thousands of Jews arrived every month from Europe while the hatred of Israel continued to grow under uh, Gamal Nasser, president of Egypt. In 1956, the Suez Canal uh, campaign begins. On October 29th, four Egyptian fighters pinned down an Israeli supply convoy in the Sinai, leaving the soldiers on the ground helpless against the air assault. Two Israeli aircraft take to the air and in a daring speed of sound dive, get this, from 44,000 feet with a zero margin for error and a split-second window to ensure success. Two IAF fighters break from the clouds right behind four Egyptian aircraft, and in two minutes, three of the aircraft were down, and the fourth fled back to its base. What followed was, in a 100 hours, Israeli forces captured the entire Sinai and the Suez Canal. January 4th, 1964, Yitzhak Rabin becomes chief of staff. Tensions in the Golan are mounting, and Egypt and Syria offer an ultimatum to Israel, leave or die. The Arab world amasses a half a million troops, stockpiles weapons for a final attack on Israel. Israel calls up all its reserves. On June 5th, 1967, at 7.15, a call was sounded. IAF Commander Major General Moti Hod announced at the beginning of the Operation Focus. IAF aerially attacked the Egyptian Air Force, attacking plane after plane, eventually destroying the Suchi, the MiG, the Alishan, and the Tupolog aircrafts. The Egyptian Air Force runways were destroyed as well. The IAF attack resulted in the destruction of 197 Egyptian aircrafts and 11 airports in six minutes. Six airports and eight radar stations were taken out of action as well. 9.34 a.m., second wave attacks began in which 107 grounded Egyptian planes were bombed at 1,500 hours after Israel was already teeming with rumors of the Egyptian Air Force defeat. Defense Minister Moshe Dayan called for a press conference. He warned the press not to publish the amount of Arabic planes Israel destroyed, which at the time numbered over 400. At 0200 hours, the Chief of General Staff, Lieutenant General Yitzhak Rabin, broadcasted from nationwide radio, 400 enemy planes were destroyed. Major General Hod broadcasted that the IAF had lost 19 pilots. The following day, Central Command issued a combat pamphlet amongst the soldiers saying, never have so few pilots down so many planes in so short a period of time. 
June 6, 0600, following intense combat, the paratrooper brigade began under uh, Major General Mordecai Gurr, finally freed Ammunition Hill. 21 paratroopers were killed. Dozens more were injured. The Jordanians lost 70 fighters in the battle. And throughout the day, paratroopers, in cooperation with the Jerusalem Brigade, conquered the neighborhoods and towns surrounding the old city. And out of respect for the holiness of the old city, the troops avoided using armor and artillery. At 5.30, the IDF began shelling Gaza. The 7th Armored Brigade, commanded by Major General Yisrael Tal, was charged with conquering Gaza. The brigade was enforced by further paratrooper uh, troops under command of Raful. Uh, once Gaza was conquered, the shells ceased falling on the settlements lining the border. June 7th, in the late hours of the morning, the 55 Brigade breached the old city, traveling through the Lion's Gate. After half an hour, the brigadier commander emotionally reported on his two-way radio words that still reverberate in the ears of every Jew today. The Temple Mount is in our hands. And the Israeli flag was raised on the Western Wall. The chief military rabbi, Major General Shlomo Goran, Organized the evening prayers at the Western Wall for all those troops that freed the city. Emotions ran high, hugs, shouts of confusion also, men patting each other on the shoulders, laughter, cries, hugging. And Rear Brigade Commander Gurr said, I feel here that this is my home. It is our dream. The Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac, the Holy Temple, the Maccabees, Mar Kokhba, the Romans and the Greeks, each with the same interest, but our emotions are deeper than them all. We here on the Temple Mount are home. June 8th, after a quick advancement during the night, IDF soldiers reached the Suez Canal. All the passes to the west were blocked with Egyptian armed forces who attempted to reach the canal, and they were ambushed and attacked in the Gidi and the Mitle passes, and they escaped, and the Egyptians set the Ra Sudar oil fields on fire. On the way to the canal, the IDF armed forces, which were leading the charge, defeated large Egyptian armed forces, which were attempting to pave a way to the canal, and at the end of a day, of battle saturated with blood, many armored corps casualties. There were thousands of Egyptian soldiers who were stranded in the heart of the desert with no access to supplies or ammunition. Israeli battalion of tanks managed to successfully face 60 Egyptian tanks. At 2130, the Egyptians announced their agreement to a ceasefire in the Sinai. The major general of the Southern Command, Sheikh Gavish, Summarize the events. The IDF destroyed 600 tanks, 100 functioning Egyptian tanks were captured, 10,000 Egyptian soldiers were killed, 3,000 Egyptian soldiers were captured. The IDF losses in the Sinai, 275 dead, 800 soldiers injured, 61 tanks were hit. June 9th, Israel captured the Golan Heights. So an army almost equal in size to 25% of the whole population of Israel exceeding certainly the whole of their military, are handed a humiliating defeat in six days. And their cause of wiping Israel off the map is supernaturally thwarted by God, strengthening the strategies of the Israeli forces. October 6, 1973, the Yom Kippur War, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And during this year, the month of Ramadan, Egypt and Syria launched a coordinated surprise attack against Israel. The equivalent of the total forces of NATO in Europe was mobilized on Israel's borders and the Golan Heights. Approximately 180 Israeli tanks faced, hit this, an onslaught of 1,400 Syrian tanks. 180 Israeli tanks versus 1,400 Syrian tanks. Along the Suez Canal, less than 500 Israeli defenders with only three tanks were attacked. Get this, 500 Israeli soldiers with three tanks were attacked by 600,000 Egyptian soldiers and 2,000 tanks and 550 aircraft. Nine Arab states, including four non-Middle Eastern nations, Libya, Sudan, Algeria, and Morocco, actively aided the Egyptian-Syrian war effort. A few months before the attack, Iraq transferred a squadron of hunter jets to Egypt, and during the war, an Iraqi division of 18,000 men, several hundred tanks, was deployed in the central Golan and participated in the October 16th attack against Israeli positions. Iraqi MiGs began operating over the Golan Heights as early as October 8th, the third day of the war. And besides serving as financial underwriters, 
Saudi Arabia and Kuwait committed men to battle. A Saudi brigade of approximately 3,000 troops was dispatched to Syria, where it participated in fighting along the approaches to Damascus, violating the Paris ban on the transfer of French-made weapons. Libya sent uh, Mirage fighters to Egypt. Other North African countries responded to Arab and Soviet calls to aid the frontline states. Algeria sent three aircraft, of squ- aircraft squadrons of fighters and bombers, an armor brigade, 150 tanks. One to 2,000 Tunisian soldiers were positioned in the Nile Delta. Sudan stationed 3,500 troops in southern Egypt. Morocco sent three brigades to the front lines, including 2,500 men to Syria. Lebanese radar units were used by Syrian air defense forces. Lebanon also allowed Palestinian terrorists to shell Israeli civilian settlements from its territory. Palestinians fought on the southern front with the Egyptians and the Kuwaitis in the greatest tank battle since the Germans and Russians fought at Kursk in World War II. Roughly 1,000 Israeli and Egyptian tanks massed in the western Sinai from October 12th to 14th. On October 14th, Israeli forces destroyed 250 Egyptian tanks in the first two hours of fighting. Late in the afternoon of the same day, the Israeli forces had completely routed the enemy. October 18th, Israeli forces were marching with little opposition all the way to Cairo. At the same time, Israeli troops were on the outskirts of Damascus, easily within artillery range of the Syrian capital. Prime Minister Golda Meir did not want to attack Damascus, so the IDF stopped its advance and focused on activities of recapturing Mount Hermon, the highest peak in the region, and a key Israeli radar and observation post that had fallen to the Syrians early in the fighting. On October 22nd, Israel once again controlled the Golan Heights, again in 1973. Israel lost 114 planes during the war, only 20 in combat. The others obviously were shot or blown up on the ground. Israeli pilots shot down at least 450 Arab aircraft in dogfights. On October 22nd, the UN Security Council adopted uh, Resolution 338 calling for all parties to cease firing and terminate all military activity immediately. The resolution also called for the implementation of Resolution 242, and the vote came on that day that Israeli forces cut off and isolated the Egyptian Third Army and were in a position to destroy it, and Israel reluctantly complied with the ceasefire, largely because of U.S. pressure, but also because the next military moves would have been to attack two Arab capitals, something few believe would be politically wise. By the end of the fighting in in 1973, the Yom Kippur War, 2,688 Israeli soldiers have been killed. Combat deaths for Egypt and Syria total 7,700 and 3,500 respectively. Now here's the point of all that, and we're done. You still here? Opposing Israel's right to their land is to live under the reign of error. Opposing Israel's right to their land is to live under the reign of error, and here's why. Thus says the Lord in Jeremiah 31, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Remember, the Lord of hosts can also be translated as the Lord of armies. If these ordinances depart from me, meaning if the moon doesn't rule the night and the stars with them, if the sea and its waves cease roaring and the sun doesn't come out, Uh, to brighten the day. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heaven can be measured, the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. We are living under the reign of error today as it pertains to the nation of Israel. But God has, as he did in the past, and in the recent past, he is going to defend and, his, and deliver his people from the oppression many seek to put them under today. And all I can say to that is even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said. Amen. And Father, we are thankful for this history lesson reminding us that you are still at work even when 300 and a couple of tanks or three tanks are approached by 600,000 trained soldiers, Lord, you're able to bring about the victory. And we thank you for these evidences with the nation of Israel, modern nation of Israel today, reminding us that there's no expiration date on your promises to your chosen people, be they the Jews by birth or the church by faith. 
Lord, your word stands fast in the heavens, and therefore we can trust and rely on and cling to every word on every page and know that that which you have spoken will come to pass, and it's all true. Thank you for the promise that you will come again and receive us unto yourself, that where you are, we may be also. And Lord, we thank you for these exceedingly great and precious promises that we can, Lord, act upon, trust in and believe to while we wait and not find ourselves like Saul, forced into doing something we're forbidden to do. So help us, Lord, with the evidence we just examined of your faithfulness to your people. Remember that when we wait on you, when it seems like the enemy is pressing yet, we can still wait and have our strength renewed. For you will not abandon us. You said you would not leave us as orphans. You have given us your spirit. And therefore, Lord, you haven't given us the spirit of fear. So we need not open the door to other fears because we have the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. Thank you for our time and text tonight. We pray you bless the rest of this week, our time together on Sunday. And may we all, Lord, remember that which you have done for Israel is the same things you'll do for us. Thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, and all the Wednesday night warriors said, Amen. Amen.